The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. This week on the podcast, it's the coolest bar in all of Poland. They take you down a real miner's elevator. You dress up in a hard hat and a full miner's suit. Some people opt to actually do kind of a miner's work for a few hours to finish off their tour. But the best part of it is, of course, this tavern located on the on the mine's lowest level. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hey, welcome Bart. to the winemakers. This is Brian Casey um, here with Bart Hansen and Sam Katuri, and we've got Rob McMillan on today from Silicon Valley Bank. And let me just preface the show by, you know, saying that, you know, Rob, I'll give you an opportunity to, to basically give, give people um, a, a little brief synopsis of what it is exactly you do. But the, the show is going to be about um, the wine industry and the health of the wine industry. And it's, it's about information. And, you know, Rob, I was watching um, – um, you with Paul Maybray and the woman from Wente uh, on YouTube. It was nice that you got to pull up both parts of that conversation that you had. And it's nice when you've got the charts and the graphs available for you to look at. Um, in this case, you know, our listeners aren't going to have those charts and graphs. And, and, and Bart and Sam, I'm sure um, even when we go in and speak with someone like Paul, you know, sometimes it's the conversation can get a little echo chambery when you're talking about DTC and RTD. And so what I'm just going to ask from the beginning is that when we're talking about things, we, we, we recognize that a lot of our listeners are in the wine business, but some of them are not, they're just um, casual wine drinkers and listeners. So if we just to maybe take a little bit more time to explain to them, um, on get out of the, what it get out of the jargon a little bit. Yeah. What it is that we're talking about. Um, so Rob, I'm going to throw it over to you. Why don't you let people know what it is, um, you, the self-intro? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, uh, I've been in the wine business now as a, as a banker, if that makes any sense at all. For <laughs> first, my, my first job was at 1981 in, um, in Lake County, in actually uh, Lakeport, which uh, I don't mean to offend any, any fans in Lakeport, but as a single, <laughs> that was, it wasn't the hot ground for me, put it that way. <laughs> Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, my first loan was actually to a winery called Chateau du Lac, which I doubt anybody knows, um, you got to go back into a long ways, but, um, that was, uh, a guy that was building a crush pad over in Lake County. And, um, and I, I, just to show you, I'm, I'm a prognosticator. I'm a, you know, an analyst and I, I look at the business I forecast. Just to show you how good I am, I told this guy way back when, I said, you know, he's got building this crush pad. I said, you know, I understand Lake Mendocino, or pardon me, uh, Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino. That used to be the three premium spots that I heard you talk about, uh, you know, as being the premium wine regions. And uh, Lake County, I, I don't know. I don't know. And he, I said, it's going to work. And, uh, and he said, well. Pears and walnuts. Yeah, it was pears and walnuts. That's right. Mostly pears back then. Um, but um, that was just Jackson. 
<laughs> so Chateau du Lac became uh, uh, Kendall Jackson, which became Jackson Family Wines now. So yeah, what did he know? Yeah, so, yeah exactly. So <laughs> when I uh, when I think I know what I'm talking about, I just remind myself of that uh, early experience for me. Jess Jackson is the only person who ever picked my dad up in a helicopter to try and convince him to go work for him. Okay. Well, he was going to push him out if he didn't? Yeah, pretty much. I think that, <laughs> I think that may have been the message. Little, little Pablo Escobar action. <laughs> the goal of the dead. But yeah, I think that that was uh, the underlying uh, message there. You know, it will work. It, you know, that's funny that that was my only experience with Jess Jackson was working for the Benziger family at the imagery tasting room and getting a phone call one day um, saying, hey, would you guys mind if we landed in your parking lot? Jess Jackson wants to go look at the grapes over at Arrowwood. And we thought, <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. So he landed his helicopter and walked right over to Arrowwood. And, um, yeah, the rest is history for that guy. Huh? Yeah. So that so, must have been like right in the middle of the whole like Arrowwood, Jess Jackson constellation totally. drama, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and it was probably when he was going to look at it to try to decide, you know, what to do because that would have been after Richard sold it to right. Mondavi, quote unquote Mondavi. Um so yeah. And I'm sure Mike Benziger loved that because Mike and Richard were so fond of each other <laughs> and then had Jess Jackson <laughs> into it. <laughs> that that was probably about the exact same time that that Jess Jackson and might have been out of that parking lot i mean it was right around the same time that phil got the uh, helicopter tour of the jackson family holdings uh right. and, and the pitch to to go farm for him early 2000 era so, right? yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. so, so Rob, what was, what? In, he's in building a crush pad in lake county yeah wow. on, yeah the winery of chateau du lac and you know that, back then the people who got into the wine industry it was doctors dentists lawyers, veterinarians, because uh, we were under the Tax Reform Act of, I uh, uh, can't remember which act, which act that was, but but the, <laughs> it's been so long, but, uh, you know, effectively it uh, uh, gave accelerated depreciation if you had assets, and, and uh, a, lot, a lot of professionals uh, decided to get into the wine business back then because uh, they could offset their current income against uh, investments in the winery. So the huh. wineries need a lot of capital. They need a lot of assets and tanks. They need vineyards and you know, a lot of stuff. Um, and so when you apply accelerated depreciation to it, it uh, if you have any kind of wealth, it actually works out pretty well. So that's that's what we went through actually in the, uh, that would have been in the uh, late 70s and into the, the, the early 90s. That's That was the... So so my um, my first job in the business, Rob, was at Kenwood, and at the time, Kenwood had a about a hundred and twenty acre vineyard that they owned, but they owned it with like twenty other um, uh, dentists and doctors, and that's exactly what it was. And and they didn't invest in the winery, but they were fully invested in the vineyard. So that's that's interesting. I always I always kind of wondered why how they found all those guys. Yeah, that's the, that's the story. Uh, you know, that was uh, pretty much the frontier back then. It, it, people think, you know, people think that the wine industry has been around all the time, and you can actually go back into the, uh, 
the you know 18 middle 1880s 1885 something like that and uh, we had a fairly large production uh, wine industry that uh, was uh, was growing annually and uh, prohibition set it all back I, I don't remember the exact year but somebody told me that we had to get to the uh, late 60s or something like that in terms of production before we even made up for what we had uh, back in the eight, late 1800s. So that just shows you what happened to the industry back then. Yeah. So Ron, what, what bank was that you were with then? Bank of America. Bank of America. So there's a disrespect, so there's, no disrespect intended, but I uh, I always say it was a good place to work. It's a good place to be from. Right, right. <laughs> that was back then. And Rob, what was the bank's specific interest in in getting involved with with the analytics and all the numbers that 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 you do? Is it is it that the the wineries want money and you want to see how healthy um, their business is? So, the way um, you're referring to people that don't know, you know, I write an annual report. Uh, it's, this will be my 20 year, uh, 20th year doing it. And uh, it gets a lot of press and it's picked up worldwide, which, which surprises me. I don't know, I didn't write it for the world. I wrote it for the wine industry because we, we really lack good information, good data. Uh, but, uh, the way the report came up was um, I wrote the original business plan to start Silicon Valley Bank's wine dis division and at a point moved up to Napa, which is where our headquarters was. And I had to write a board report and explain how we were doing and what the market was like and uh, where, where we were headed. And so I, I started trying to put it together. And I couldn't find any, I could find the, you know, the great crush report. I could find, you know, some big winery stuff, but I couldn't find anything about small winery. I was, you know, how am I going to get it? So I, I called around to our customers and I, I had them fill out a quick survey. I just, I mean, actually it's a verbal, I just, you know, give me the following questions. And then after that, I, I used that, I produced a board report. And when I was done, I looked at it and I said, Hey, that's, that's not bad. <laughs> you know, that's pretty, that's pretty good. So what I did is I sent it back to everybody um, in, our, uh, in our wine division at that and all of our clients. And they all looked at it, not everybody, but I mean, I got, I got enough people that looked at it and they said, how did you put this together? This is amazing. We don't have this kind of information. Man, this is so lacking. What, you know? And so that's how the report started. It was just a board report and then I just repurposed it. Uh, and that, you know, so the next year I did it again, did it again, did it again. And, uh, yeah, just as a coincidence, yesterday I was looking, you know, back into what I wrote in 2006. I think uh, I, I lost the ones before that. I lost the original email, sadly. I don't know where that one went. Um, but that's that's what it started off. It started off as an email. That's how I distributed it to all of our clients. Right. Hmm. This is your 20 now. Wow. And that's available to anyone. You want to tell people where they can find that if they want to check it out? Yeah, yeah, it's easy to find. Uh, you can uh, probably locate it by going to my blog, which is SVB Online, stands for Silicon Valley Bank, SVB Online. Or you can go to svb.com. Uh, let, me, let me shut my dog up so you can, uh, <laughs> you can hear the URL. Was, it, was that you or Bart? No, that was right. Bart. Okay. It could have been really th any three of us. I wasn't, I wasn't going to throw him under the bus. Okay, no, I muted him. So go ahead and give it again. 
it's uh, www.svb.com. And then if you want to make it easy, just go slash wine hyphen report. So svb.com slash wine hyphen report. Okay. Go get the current reports. I think the slasher is like 70 pages and it's, you know, I used to do it. I'm a, I'm a musician and, and drum, you know, I'm a drummer, uh, play guitar, sing a little bit. And, uh, but a trained musician, so entertaining is, you know, I think things should be entertaining, should be fun. I've always kind of been that way. I used to write the report with the movie theme as a background. <laughs> was, you know, was, if there was something like, uh, you know, coming our way, it would be Jaws or something like that. So it's uh, when you when you get the report, I don't use a movie theme anymore because one day somebody said to me, well, you know, we might be sued for copyright. And it's like, so uh, that's, so I had to get rid, get rid of the movie themes. Yeah, well, and I'm just hoping that next year's wouldn't be either Armageddon or Outbreak. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't use movie things anymore. Uh, <laughs> my point was, it's it's actually it's not a, a bubblehead read. It's actually pretty easy to read. I think. Uh, please people yeah. tell me. I can. Oh. I mean, I can read it. So that's right. We can get through it. We can, you know. You're positive. Pull the, pull the gems out. Uh, I, I have a. I have a wine business banker friend uh you know somebody we've worked with on various projects over the years rob who describes the wine business as the most complicated business of anything that he's ever dealt with and and i don't know if that's your experience but how would you you know in comparison to other things that silicon valley bank does working in silicon valley for crying out loud um how does the, the wine business compare just from a from a standpoint of complication and, and all the different places that you can land and, and how, where you start kind of determines that. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's the most complex business I've ever been involved in too. Um, the, you know, back to when I wrote the original report for the original business plan for the bank, I had no intention on running this. I was in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, had, plenty of other work to do that was very interesting. And I had a, uh, a marketing uh, group of people that, you know, helped me build a great portfolio. And I was fascinated to see the growth in Silicon Valley back in Silicon Valley back then. So this is uh, 1990, uh, 1991. Right. And so I was just going to write uh, business plans as, a, as an idea person. I was just going to write business plans and we were going to start, start them. In different niches, different verticals. That was kind of be the bank's approach, and um, they hired somebody else to start it. And I went off to my next plan. And then a the year later, the CEO came to me and said, "You got to, you got to move to Napa." And I said, "I don't want to." <laughs> and he says, "Well, everybody wants to move to Napa." And I said, "Well, I don't. Um, I mean, I, I like wine well enough, but I like shoe polish just as well." <laughs> the time I drank whites and Vendel and Seven Up, I said, "It's just." You know, I'm in my early 40s, I think, and I, it looked like retirement to me. This is like there's no action. What? Why would I want to do that? And and so that was my fear is that I would just be bored. I, I didn't want to be bored. And, and what I've discovered is I've never been bored a day. There, this business is so complex. It took me, even though I thought I understood it, uh, it had evolved from the 19, early 80s, early 80s when I got in. And uh, it took me a full decade of, of research and, uh, and analytics to actually get to the point where I felt like I, I understood it 
uh, I had instinct on it, and I could probably answer most questions about uh, you know pressures and and opportunities and and threats and things like that. And it took me a full decade of uh, really uh, you know heavy immersion to get to that point. And I'm still not bored. I mean, there's still plenty of stuff to do, plenty of stuff to learn every single day. So it's, yeah, it's really complex. Yeah. Well, can we start with sort of what the wine industry in general looked like pre-COVID as opposed to what we're looking like four months later? Yeah, so uh, pre-COVID, the industry was uh, starting to hit a wall. And I, and I talked about it in my report over the last several years. Uh, we were seeing sales growth decline in wine sales. Uh, we, we were seeing growth and direct-to-consumer sales, but the uh, the under this year, actually looking back last year now, the $11 price points uh, were declining in volume, uh, and dollars actually both. So, um, you know, the the, the lake was, was rising and, uh, you know, people were about ready to drown and, and they really weren't noticing it. Um, There's too much of a focus on the tasting room model for the smaller wineries and uh with for the in industry as a whole there's a, there's a component that people have no i mean very little idea there's very few people that understand this but um the world health organization is spending a lot of money right now to try to uh, eliminate alcohol and for, you know there's some good reasons for it they're uh they're looking at uh, uh, some countries that have uh, you know a true alcohol problem like our country did prior to prohibition we had we had a productivity problem people you know especially men would would drink and and go to work I mean, that's that's one of the reasons we had prohibition when we did and that that exists in africa and other other places so the world health organization has has uh, kind of got a mandate it's their top mandate now to to effectively eliminate alcohol and um and you can see the the footprint the fingerprints of it through uh, different uh, legislative bodies in the world. Uh, last year, the phrase was, uh, there is no safe amount of alcohol to drink. That was the, that was the phrase. Now that, that flies in the face of every other bit of science that was out there uh, prior, whether that was the French paradox, the Mediterranean diet, uh, Arthur Kanzler's work over decades showing that moderate, moderate alcohol consumption was actually healthy. Uh, abstinence was actually less healthy than moderate consumption. It's hard to believe that uh, that's true, but that's that's the, that's the real science. And um, and so today, the other thing we, we face is a, a younger consumer that has never been more health conscious, uh, and even an older consumer uh, that wants to be more healthy as well. So health becomes a, a an important thing, and uh, you know our marketing of wine as a whole that's the big that's the big side and the small side is not taking into account the the notion of health and there there's a there is a problem with that because if you're a permit holder if you're licensed re, uh, uh, winery you have a bond the TTB it's illegal for you to claim uh, health out attributes even if it's true it's illegal so you know you uh, can lose your license if you say wine is good for you as an example uh, matter of fact, you, you go to bottles, it, that's not what it says on the back of a bottle. So, um, you know, the combination of, of uh, 
what the World Health Organization has been doing, um, the, the neo-prohibitionists uh, that are out there, um, along with actually price. Uh, price per serving for wine is more is about 150 to 175% more than spirits. And uh, so you add all those things up, and what you see today is spirits that are that have a, a very nice growth rate on a on a, a pretty good base of five, six, seven percent. And uh, coming into last year, we were getting very close to no growth um, overall on a volume basis. Um, and so that that was where we were pre-COVID. We had all these things that we were having to deal with. Um, the issue for small areas in particular was just the over the over dominance of the tasting room model and that's the thing i kept trying to ex explain to people that we needed to do more on digital uh we needed to do more on online retail basically and uh and we had to as i say take the experience on the road we, right we had such a uh a messed up notion and in some cases i think it was more of a is more about momentum. It was working, so we weren't going to change it. People come to the tasting room. They go. They buy some wine, and maybe they take some home. They join the wine club. You know, they stay in the wine club three years, and then you, know, you got to replace them. Uh, that's great, but the the whole notion of expecting anybody to have to go to the factory to get your product is absurd in a digital world. And uh, I'm not saying that that the whole notion of tasting rooms is absurd. I'm saying that's a channel and it's actually quite good. But if you're running a winery expecting everybody to come from Minnesota or Kansas, how many times are they going to do that in a year, uh, let alone three or four? Um, so it's not a sensible model. I don't go to Detroit to buy my car. Right. Right. So trying to get people to the industry to recognize the, the problem that exists in this model, even though it's, kind of working but we were seeing decreasing uh, visitation by the way uh especially in the north coast you know kind of works but i couldn't i couldn't get anybody to to really uh, at least as a whole I, there were people that were starting to try to move into i started talking about uh skype tastings over a decade ago skype's kind of an afterthought now uh and uh and so the interesting thing about this COVID situation is that on, on March, or it depends where you are, I forget Oregon, or I think Oregon closed a little bit earlier, but on March 21st, I woke up and um, my clients, which average about 61% of sales through tasting rooms or wine club, uh, or and then another 15% through restaurants, um, they're in trouble. Um, so, you know, now what's going to happen? So post-COVID, um, the, in, the wine industry is resilient. Uh, and the, the nice thing about wine, if you're as a product, is that uh, it is recession resistant. It's not that it's recession proof, um, but people that are wine lovers love, love wine and they're going to they're gonna get it, they're going to find it. And so what, what ended up happening, even, even though tasting rooms closed, um, the period from March through middle May, so roughly 90 days, what we saw was the amount of, of uh, uh, money that was lost out of the tasting room, just those direct sales, uh, was fully replaced by uh, repositioning people to, to phone sales, 
Um, there, uh, the, the club shipments were largely uh, either 100% sold out or oversubscribed in, in some cases. Um, and online went from being less than 1.5% of total sales to being about 16% of total sales over that same period. So 100% of the direct revenue was actually replaced. Um, what's not replaced, though, is the restaurant. About 50% that goes to uh, uh, the on-premise restaurant accounts, and that hasn't been replaced. So uh, that's bad. And then as far as that... I, I would say anecdotally, that's um, pretty much exactly... Uh, can you just take these notes so that not, I don't feel like I'm forgetting to fill out the, the survey in, in October? <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, that's pretty much exactly the experience that we've had at 16600. Um, you know, the, the restaurant sales have pretty much evaporated. Off-premise is still existing and actually doing pretty good. Um, but by shifting to, you know, putting, you know, making phone calls, email never had the kind of response that it had, especially in those first three months. Um, and, and online, just, you know, pure website sales that had no cost of, of, um, of uh, you know, bringing those in, like, showed up. Um, in a way that you know was totally unexpected. To where that yeah, those numbers that you say and, and maybe even and then some in our case um, was made up for the tasting. But the the limitation of that is um, it becomes much more expensive and much more rare and difficult to ship wine once you hit that mid-May summertime weather. Um, you know now we're basically holding all shipping until. Until the until the fall, right? So that yeah, and, definitely and we have to be we have to be better at that because there's there's solutions. You know, there are cold packs that you can put put bottles in, and and uh, especially at a time like this. I mean, when, when we look at the online, uh, you know, Sam, you, you talked about that was kind of a surprise, and, and that was a surprise to the entire industry. And you know, why is that? It's because we have wine lovers, right? So, in the grocery stores, the grocery stores were showing average 30% growth year over year, an incredible growth. But the vast majority of that goes to the, you know, the top 17 wineries in the country, um, you know, that, that don't really have tasting rooms in, in, in almost all cases. So, um, you know, that, that's not going to help the, the small wineries. The, and, and people thought, oh, I can just switch from, the, from restaurants. I'll just have my distributor sell my wine in the grocery. And obviously that, that doesn't work either because as groceries already, uh, you know, got normally it's got plenty of wine, although you know, at a point in this, in this process, uh, you know, the grocery stores were closing early to restock shelves. It was, you know, it was that kind of a, that kind of a thing. Um, but the, the online, it was passive. It was all passive sales. It's, it's not like we were doing e-commerce. We weren't reaching out. We weren't identifying customers. We weren't segmenting them. We weren't, marketing to them, they, they went online and they, and they looked for the, the labels that they knew that maybe they were in, in the club before, uh, however they knew the, that label, and then they would go buy direct. Um, right. And so we still have to get a lot better at, at e-commerce. Having a shopping cart is not e-commerce. E-commerce is actually you know, doing the data analytics, figuring out who your customers are, who is likely to buy. Uh, when they might rotate out of a club, what else you have to do at that point. Um, those are the kind of things that we have to do if we're going to be a digital uh, industry. Yeah. And let's talk about health in general as far as 
wine being a healthy beverage. Because I only it, drink clean wine now, Brian. I only drink clean wine. It's it's a natural product, um, but I don't think that message gets pushed out as much as it should be. And and Sam, we can laugh about natural wine, but I think I think the more I look into that segment of the market, the more I think that they had something going for them that a lot of people didn't see. It was it was something in their marketing. Um, and the demographic that they were hitting um, was different from um, most mainstream wineries. And it had to do with packaging and it had to do with the message about being natural that somehow isn't getting transferred over to the, to the, uh, to the normal wineries. Uh, and, I, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Brian, I, you know what? I, my last speech was a uh, keynote in, in the Washington Wine Conference. Uh, People, that's ah, right. About maybe two thirds of the people showed up because there had been a you know pocket outbreak of COVID in Eastern Washington. That was originally one of that was the first hotspot actually, and so uh, that was that was my last speech. And uh, when I I missed being on the stage, by the way, uh, <laughs> you can you can't you know when you're on the stage, you can you got a thousand people in front of them, you can hear them laugh, you can hear them chuckle, you can hear them groan, you can see their faces. Um, when you're doing a thousand people video cast, you can't hear any of them. They're all muted. And so telling a, telling a joke to your computer screen <laughs> isn't, isn't very easy. That's uh, why I laugh. That's why I laugh at all my own jokes. That, yeah. that way I know somebody's laughing. Uh, but anyway, that's sidebar. I, I, you know, not, not to distract from, from the point. I, I, the end of my speech, one of the things I talked about was why the spirits industry is kicking our ass. And, and it's because if you go and you look at, let's just take Kettle One as an example. Kettle One was a struggling vodka brand. Um, you know, Tito's Natural, handmade, I think. That's that's the dominant spirit right now in the United States. And uh, But when you go through like Kettle One, Kettle One decided to make the shift to uh, Kettle One Botanical. And once they called it botanical and they started putting pictures of flowers on it and they yeah. started using words like natural, non-GMO. I mean, this goes across the board now. If you just look at any product, uh, if you looked at any, any consumer snack, uh, you know, salt and sweet snacks, uh, you look at the way almost anything is marketed now. It'll include these little bubbles on the side that say how many calories, non-GMO, gluten-free, um, uh, just a, you know, a long litany of things. And, uh, you know, Kettle One that ended up taking off, you know, craft is another thing, by the way, as, you know, Tito's handmade, right? You know, that's not a thing. You know, what's so good about uh, seltzers? What's so good about spike seltzers? You know, that's, that's got like two to 300% growth year over year now for three or four, three or four in a row on a consistent basis, and it's just amazing. What's so good about it? Well, go back and read the labels. First, they, they show that it's got about 100 calories on it, which seems to be a number of people gravitate. You know? And if you don't like that, if you know your, your product's actually got 200 calories, shrink the bottle, shrink the can. And now it's got 100, and now it looks good. That's what Coke did. Coca-Cola did that. They, they, they took their big, uh, their 12 ounce, converted them to seven and a half, and they could say lower, lower sugar. Um, the sugar's bad, by the way, and 
And so the consumer doesn't, you know, they want to know, you know, how much sugar is in this bottle. So look at a wine label. Uh, how are we marketing to that consumer? Now, there are some people that say, um, you know, here, this is what we're, this is how we're going to define natural wine. Natural wine will be defined as the following. But I think that's crap uh, because that's not the way we define anything. The way anything comes to be is through uh, this weird interaction of, of consumers, really, um, who define almost any word. And natural is already, it's already there. It's already, it's already got a, you know, a real instinctive consumer term. And we can't just, as the wine industry, hijack the term natural and make everybody in the industry sign up to that term and then expect the consumer to adjust to that term. To me, that's asinine. That's, that's not the way to market. You don't market by telling the way you're going to define a word. You look at the consumer and you say to yourself, how do they define natural? And then you make the product or, or market the product in the way that they define natural rather than telling them to change their language. It would be like us, you know, uh, taking an American wine and, you know, trying to sell it in Russian. You know, now, now you're going to convince the whole world to speak Russian instead, or at least the United States. So it, that doesn't make any sense to me. But, but we, we do have to, uh, you know, look at that whole aspect of health. And although we can't talk about uh, wine being good for you, we can say it's natural. We can say, if we want to put the, there's already a TTB approved uh, label that you can put in the back that lists proteins, fat, carbohydrates, and calories. So it's a modified label, already approved. It's just voluntary. Um, and if you, if you put the amount of carbs that are in your, uh, in your wine in the back, then you have the right to say it's, lo it's low carb, whether or not it's, uh, you know, a lot of grams or little grams, you can say it's low carb because you've actually described how many carbs are on that and what that means on the back. Um, we don't list sugar. Uh, you know, people that are, uh, you know, have health issues, they, you know, they want to know. They want to know about uh, gluten-free. Um, and, you know, we don't tell them that. They want to know calories. And for God's sakes, we don't tell them that. And, and, it's, and it's a it's almost like masks, wearing a, wearing a mask. It's, it's so controversial, you know. Um, we don't want to tell them what's in our wine. And so the, 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 final, the final thing that, uh, that I tell people in my speech, uh, speech deck anyways until early March, was that wine is the thing that all the consumers want. They just don't know it. <laughs> you know, and because we're not telling them. We're not telling them this good. We're not telling them right. this I mean, if you want to talk about uh, botanical, there's another buzzword. Um, you want to talk about natural? I mean, how natural can it be? You take, you take a, a, a cup of grapes and you squish them. It'll convert to wine all by itself. You don't have to do anything else to it. It'll convert, it'll convert to wine. Now, it may not be as good as you want. Use good grapes, it'll be a lot better. Uh, but you can't get any more natural than, uh, than wine. And yet, we're afraid to talk in these terms. We still want to talk about long days, cool nights, special soils. Right. Which is well, what is, what's the resistance to putting that on the label? Is it, is it the larger wineries that have a big lobbying system that doesn't want to put down that they're using oak chips or, or adding acid, you know, acidifying the wine or something like that? Or is it, because I think, what is it, Bonnie Dune and Ridge, I think they've, they've, they've put that on their labels, basically a, um, 
you know, it's, it's ingredients. Yeah, so there's, uh, in Europe, there's a, a push to put ingredients on uh, by uh, largely non-industry people. And so they want to do things like when they talk about how much sugar is in the product, mm -hmm. about how much sugar you put into the product. Pre-fermentation, the sugar converts to alcohol. So it could be totally dry, but they still want you to list sugar on it. So when you end up getting uh, uh, legislators involved in something, you may not get what you like. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, large companies put a lot of additives at times into wine, and they and that's been the, the pushback because they don't really uh, want to talk about that. To me, I say, look, fine, you know, do what you want, put additives in it. You know, you want to you want to have a you know a raspberry flavor. Uh, wine beverage, go ahead. I mean, that's that's great. That's what, you know, in some respects, that's what Bartles and James were back in the, the 80s. Uh, it's kind of what uh, spike seltzers are today. You know, we got mango flavor. Uh, you know, you can make a wine cooler. You know, it's a spike seltzer. It's all kind of the same thing. Brings people into the category. You know, let people do whatever they want on that, on that thing and market and develop products. But when it comes to, you know, Basics, why don't we just start with calories? Why don't we just start with how hard is it to, you know, why would we just not want to tell anybody how many calories are in it? And when you talk to people in the industry and you say, hey, how many calories are in a bottle of red wine? And almost nobody can answer that. I have no idea. I don't either. Yeah, it's, it's not hard for me to, it's, it's plus or minus because it depends upon the residual sugar. But uh, around 700, 750. So, so your average country club cup pour of wine is 150 to 200 calories. A, a restaurant pour maybe, but a tasting room pour is probably 50 or 60 calories worth of wine, right? Yeah, and and so why, you know, you go back to why is why are spike seltzers uh, so popular? Low alcohol, that's lower calories. They publicize the lower calories. How did, how did uh, Spike Seltzer start? Well, it really started in New York by a guy that was trying to replicate uh, Tito's handmade vodka and soda. Why Tito's handmade vodka and soda? Because uh, folklore says that that's the most popular uh, bar drink in America. And it probably is based upon the, the strength of Tito's sales. And so he was trying to say, well, how do I, you know, how do I leverage that uh, and, and put it in a can? And so that's, that's kind of where spiked seltzers came from. Uh, but Tito's and Tito's and soda is, is arguably, this is the folklore, is that it's, it's the lowest calorie uh, bar drink you can order. So, you know, people that, that are trying to watch their waistline or whatever, they walk, what am I going to have? Well, I don't want anything with sugar in it. Uh, you know, so Tito's and soda. So, you know, that's, Calories do matter, and um, and so when we guess about how much is in a pour, how much is in a bar, um, people just need to know how what they're putting in. Their mouth. And and I think they would actually like it if they figured out, you know, wine, the kind of wine that that we're all involved in, is actually uh, better for you than alternatives, <laughs> than non-natural. Ours ours is natural. We're just we're missing the mark entirely on this market. Well, and then part of that, you know, I thought it was really interesting when when you guys were talking about millennials and the snack pack 
sort of phenomenon that the, the, the RTD, the ready to drink, the grab and go with the cans and maybe smaller size portions that people are looking for, putting more things in half bottles, using more screw caps so that it makes it less prohibitive for people that want to purchase something and just take it with them and not have to worry about bringing a corkscrew or um, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so um, even today, the, the part of uh, packaging with the greatest growth is the 375s. Now, as it turns out, I, you can't see behind me, I have a, I have a screen block. Uh, it's actually a picture of the Louvre, I think, behind me. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm at my home. I just thought Silicon Valley Bank had really nice offices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Historic offices, too. But, uh, but I have behind me, I have a, uh, a box of uh, SANS Sans, Sans uh, canned wine. Uh, and, you know, I have to say, I was kind of an anti can person a few years ago. It's like, eh, I don't get it. I mean, I, you know, taking it to the beach, you know, I worry about the transfer of heat from, you know, through aluminum quickly versus the insulation from a bottle. and and, uh, you know, I just, maybe a, a little bit of my stuffiness was coming out, but I, I, I went up to Unified and they were one of the hot brands in, um, in uh, wine business monthly tasting that they, that they always do. And so I, I tasted one of their Zinfandels out of a can. It was actually good. And that started my, my revelation because I, I recognized that, you know, you could, you could put anything into a can you know, you could put the best wine in the world into a can and it would still be the best wine in the world. Um, the, the difference is, is, is uh, it's the occasion. So, you know, I, I, you know, I have a little cellar and I store, I store things in there and, and I'm not going to store a can. Well, you don't need it to store. It's, it's, you need it ready to drink. And right. beyond that, uh, you know, in, in, if you're back to one of my earlier comments about, um, you know, taking the experience on the road and selling digitally, uh, you know, one of the dominant uh, points of sale, if you're trying to convert a consumer, is trial. Right. And, and if you can't get somebody to your taste room, you better find another approach. Cans ends up being one of those things that actually could uh, help that. And then the other, the other point of that is there is restaurants, or not restaurants, uh, stores, especially around beaches and other areas are, uh, I haven't seen it myself, but reportedly um, starting to make RTD sections where they have, it's not a wine section, it's not a spirit section, it's not a beer section, it's a section of, of, of single, um, single use, single drinks, um, right. drink, whatevers. And guess what? Wine doesn't have any space. We, we won't have any representation in there because nobody makes those kind of, uh, those kind of uh, packages in, in wine, really. We don't really make ready to drink. Single. We have three seven fives. There's 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 some people that are experimenting with. They haven't done much. Um, I think it's in partly because the packaging is wrong. The messaging is all wrong. It's still long days, cool nights. It's, you know, it's the wrong consumer. Well, and and I didn't think about this until I was working at a hotel again. That everything that we do out at the pool has to be done in something that is a, not a glass container. So if people are hanging out at a pool at any resort 
up and down California, wherever, and they're, they're ordering wine at the pool, if they want something other than a glass, which we serve in a plastic wine glass, we have to open up the bottle and pour it into a plastic decanter. So we've slowly started to make the transition to canned wines, just because it's easy. We can sell them a six pack of them that they can put in an ice bucket, take to their cabana, and then just drink them as needed. Yeah, yeah, The one of the reasons I, I didn't like cans originally is because, um, again, it's maybe a little snobbiness, snobbiness, but most of the value uh, of, what's the word I'm looking for? Most of the, the appeal of wine is actually in the smell, not the taste. And so, you know, you try to suck wine out of a can, uh, you're not going to get the flavors that, that you normally saw. It was like, yeah, this doesn't work. And, and I've seen uh, Coppola, uh, Francis Ford Coppola used to have a, um, I don't know if they still do it or not, but this is back 15 years ago, used to have a, a package that included a plastic cup on it so that they could, and I think it, if I'm remembering right, it was a can. Um, they're, you know, they were amazing trendsetters, by the way. Sophia was the first uh, you know, that I remember. Uh, I, I, I remember that packaging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was at least 15 years ago. Um, but yeah. this one actually had a, had a plastic cup on it. And yep. so they, you know, they were ready to drink way, way, way back when. And, uh, I'm not sure where that, you know, if they still sell that or not, or you know, whether it worked out, the costs on it, I don't, really don't know. But those are some of the things we have to adjust to. Okay. You know, I, I think that there's um, potential for cans in the, in the premium and the, and the direct-to-consumer market as well. I mean, I, I think that um, for all the same reasons that a, a six-pack or a four-pack of canned wine works at a you know, poolside at a hotel or at a, you know, a beachside store, um, you know, if you have a membership that includes a case of cans of rosé, come with your you know six bottles of premium wine um i think people you know they might not keep them in their cellars but you know i bet you roger randall would um i think that they're you know i, I think that people will keep them around if it's like the spring shipment um not to you know give away any of my ideas but that's i, I mean i think that there could really be growth in digital and, and direct to consumer canned wine um if if the last three months have shown us anything it's growth. It's growth. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's storage. I think uh, canned, canned wine is going to be pretty much consumed immediately. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of opportunities. And, uh, you know, with cans, here's, here's one of them. Uh, one of the issues that we aren't doing as well as spirits is because our cost per serving is a lot more expensive than spirits. We're 150 to 175 percent more. Per servings, will you will you explain that um, that cost per serving metric a little bit uh, before just in 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 for you know the for the less uh, you know I don't get it yeah and so maybe maybe some of our listeners probably won't either. So there's there's a long debate about you know what a serving is and uh, you know it started with uh, uh, a you know spirits so spirits are normally you think of it as an ounce I think. Uh, some people think of it as an ounce of it. I, I'm not certain that we've actually settled on, you know, firmly on what a serving is. I know that it's spoken about though in, in government literature. 
Um, and so it's either an ounce or an ounce and a half, and, um, and wine is either four or five ounces, you know, comparable to get a, a serving of alcohol. And, and I, think, I think the basics of it are you're trying, you're trying to align the level of alcohol. Of course, it depends upon your, uh, you know, if you have a 17% Zinfandel or, you know, 11.9% uh, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, that's obviously, you know, going to impact the amount of alcohol in a, in a serving. But standardized serving is, is somebody decided a while ago that would be the way to talk about it. So, uh, so when I talk about servings, it's it's kind of in that from that framework. And and there's a couple of uh, Nielsen's done some work on it, and then BW166, John Moore Marco, done some work on it. And, uh, and so it's somewhere between 150 to 175 percent more expensive for a serving of wine compared to a serving of spirits. So when we're talking about that, now go back to the consumer and you think about when they walk in uh, to a grocery store and they look at a, a bottle of wine and it's $40. Um, you know, are, are they going to want to pay 40 or are they going to want to pay 20, uh, you know, or, or 25, 28, 50 or whatever for uh, or something that would be uh, more in spirits category. And that's what we see is we see them selecting spirits. But just like, you know, Coke cut down on calories by going from 12 to 7.5, we can cut down on cost and, and improve on trial uh, just by giving somebody the kind of wine that we want them to put in their mouth uh, at a lower price point by shrinking the size. So that's another another component of this, and it doesn't have to be cans, it can be glass, whatever you want it to be, but it ends up being critical. I think anybody that that loves wine, one of the things that you'll probably agree with is that um, your own palate went through maturation. Uh, when we started the the show, I, I talked about you know I used to drink shoe polish, white Zinfandel, and Seven Up, and and it's true. I mean I I was not a wine lover at all. Um, but you know, today I, I know what good wine is. I've been drinking it now for a very long time, and I can't go backwards. If I go to a, a restaurant or a hotel back in the good old days, the olden days before February, uh, and where you could go to a, a bar, um, and you know, I look at the wine, I look at the prices, um, and there's nothing that stands out to me. I, I'm going to have a cocktail because uh, I, I don't, I won't drink average wine really or, or, or poor wine certainly not um, so your palate evolves and, and if you think that my 94 year old mom lives with me and my, my wife and uh, and she's still in early great health and sharper at attack uh, when she moved in with us uh, about four years ago she she drank uh, Chardonnay on a Thanksgiving I had to bring Chardonnay in only way to have her enjoy it was I'd have to take a little bit of sugar and uh, water, <laughs> microwave it, about a teaspoon, and microwave it and dissolve it, and then I dump wow. it. Oh, this is good. This is good. <laughs> and so she's been living in Napa now for three years. She only drinks red wine. And uh, <laughs> this is a funny story. She goes, she goes up to my brother who lives in, um, in eastern Washington. And, and, you know, he's rightly proud of the, the wineries up there. We have many, many clients, you know, great wineries up there too. But she went to uh, uh, a couple of the larger ones with him. And, uh, and uh, she, said, she said, 
No, it's not as good as the wines that Rob has. <laughs> Tell my brother that. <laughs> so palates, palates evolve, and you can't go backwards. She, she can't drink, uh, you know, the 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 Chardonnay that's sweet now. She can't. She won't drink it. Um, and so it's a little bit of a long story. Sorry for the wandering, meandering. But the consumer can't go backwards either. So getting that young consumer who's who is frugal to try wine requires us to either change price or change packaging. And in all cases, it means we have to change the way we market. But, but here's the problem with that though, is, or a problem if you're Bart or Sam is that the people that are able to bring that canned wine, number one, to get it canned because there's minimum runs on doing canning. So if you're someone who's a small producer, that's only doing, 50, 7,500 cases per varietal or vineyard or whatever, then that's, that's a little bit prohibitive. But then also to bring that price down and the distribution as well, now you've got access to all of this bulk juice that's on the market because of 18 and because of what's going on right now, all this juice is sitting around. So the people that are probably most likely to bring those products to market are going to be the larger companies, not the smaller winemaker, which it's, it seemed like for a while, you know, with the building of crush pads, it was a little bit swinging to the smaller guy where s smaller guys could produce wine. And now it looks like the pendulum's swinging a little bit back towards the larger corporations because, it, because of a lot of different factors. But, you know, some people just aren't able to play in that arena. But, you know, uh, one, one, thing, one thing I'll say about that is that I, I talked to some people just the other day the can van and this is a little mobile canning van that they're primarily doing business um, and so there are those things Brian and I think as as you know there's more custom crush pads and more um, you know small producer places I think that will change if the consumer keeps going towards it so I think I guess the point is is that small guys like Sam and I we have to jump into it somehow and maybe that's by buying your own little, you know, crimper to do your own cans and start testing it. Um, uh, you know, it's always, the big guy's always going to have a little bit of the advantage. Um, so it's just a matter of us taking the, taking the chance to try to do it, I think, a little bit also. Yeah, it's, um, it's a mind shift in, in producers is what it really is. And, um, and if there's no way to do it from a cost basis, then there's no way to do it. And and certainly if you're uh, you know, you're making a hundred cases, then there's no sense in doing it. Um, uh, but at a point, you have to recognize that it's marketing. So you know what's the return for marketing? You know how you know if you're going to uh, invest in uh, you know branding, labeling. Um, a marketing campaign, you know, how much do you get back from that? You know, and so when people start to talk about, well, it's not, it's not cost effective. So, well, a part of that, you're going to have to write off the marketing. Part of that is marketing. Part of that is, it's back to that trial. And then again, if you're going to do that, it's not just about creating a product. It's, it's following up on being on the backside of that table. So the, that, that tail, so that you can somehow find a way to engage with that consumer. They tried it. Now you got to figure out how to sell it because the second sale is the most important sale. It's not the first, but if you're not tracking any of that data, that's what, that's what direct sales are about. That's what 
online sales are about. It's it's about tracking who those consumers are and and who have who's actually got a predisposition to buy your wine. And one of the one of the big things are people that have already tried it. But you, you got to follow up. Yeah, but again, that's that's, that's, that's that's the that's the biggest issue that we face as an industry is that we all want to make wine uh, and we all want to grow grapes, but I don't want to work hard at selling. I hate to say it that way. it sounds pejorative. Uh, Sounds like I'm, I'm picking on people, but we're, I think it's just a matter of distraction. We're just so in love with the product. We're so in love with the, the, the vineyards and the whole thought about wine. And we geek out on it because it's what we think of ourselves. Um, but we don't spend the time that we need to mentally, emotionally think through the marketing side. And so we're very slow to evolve. Yeah, because you're right. And, and, and again, that's who's going to get the smartest people in marketing is going to be the people like Winty or, you know, some of the larger wineries are going to be able to have those departments that are willing to spend money to have the smartest people with the, with the best, uh, with the best information. So who's fastest. See, now that's, you're right. Now that's someplace where you could, someone that's light on their feet is able to maybe get there before them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's good. Best wine techniques always comes from the small guys, all the advances in wine, comes from the small guys that are out there doing, you know, trials all the time. They're willing to try something. You go to a big company, now you got to work through a chain. You got to work through your manager. It's got to go to his manager. You got cross-functional issues with growing and production. You got to, you know, you got to pull teams together. You, you know, got to convince people. You got to write a report. You know, a, a, a single. They have to talk to the banker. Decision to go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure orange wine in an amphora didn't come out of uh, Gallo. Yeah. Yeah. So we just have to, we have to be open to change. And, um, and, and by the way, not all change is good, but, uh, but I'm doing my best right now to, to push away the ghosts that are holding us back. Yeah. Well, and can we, there, there was a, there's been a couple sort of shift, shifting back to the power of DTC and, and where the health of that part of the industry is. There've been, there's two acquisitions in the last week or two that um, in my mind are all about DTC and, and I'd love to hear sort of your take on them and sort of what they mean larger frame. Um, and one is the big, the Empathy Wines, Gary Vanderchuk's DTC brand that he started that he just sold for probably a very big number to Constellation. And then this morning we wake up uh, and this is, you know, hits, hits to right at the home of the, you know, the Hospice de Rhone, us, you know, wine geek side of the industry, which is the Booker Vineyard in in Paso Robles, uh, and Eric Jensen making a deal with with Constellation as well. And again, you know, there's I guess he has a he has sort of a second label neighborhood brand, um, but he also uh, you know has a very strong uh, DTC brand, the Booker the Booker Vineyard brand. So I don't know, you know kind of what you think those things mean. Um, larger scale or is it just about the health of those individual businesses do you think that that's the kind of thing that's still you know we see more of that in the future well the the, the common thread there is constellation and you, you can add one more into it you can go right. back to Schrader Remember that acquisition um, and right. Schrader I mean it's minuscule brand but right. you know it had a lot of cachet uh, especially with Tokelon and so Constellation already on Mondavi. Uh, 
Um, and so the opportunity to take Tokolon grapes and expand the Schrader label with authentic Tokolon, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. uh, you know, made sense on a growth and on a margin basis. The acquisition of Canopy Growth, their, their cannabis thing, that made sense from a growth basis. They saw it as a growth opportunity. I think, I think they were too early. Uh, right. Early, there's too much uh, variability due to acceptance, but changing laws, uh, local right. and federal. Uh, but, but, you know, they saw that as growth. Um, and then these last two acquisitions, uh, again, it's about growth. It's, it's the old pyramid scheme. And I should have all the pyramid scheme, but the, the, the pyramid philosophy where you have flagship that um, that is, you know, it's sold profitably, but it's used as a marketing uh, icon, if you will, to to sell something else, which is a very different approach than the way Constellation um, uh, and Diageo. Um, behaved when they bought Ravenswood and uh, Rosenblum, right? I mean, you, you buy Rosenblum and, um, you know, who had Old Vines Infidel, and you go from, let's call it 25,000 cases to 300,000 cases. I don't know if you remember that era, but, you know, they, uh, and I'm going to make the numbers up, but they, they went from selling at $28 a bottle to, let's just say 12, I'm making the numbers up. $28 a bottle, you have one consumer. At 12, you have a different consumer. And, and guess what they do? They, you know, at, at a certain point, uh, I was wondering where they're getting the old vines infidel in the same way that I wonder where we get 30-year-old uh, aged bourbon. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you start talking to people, and it's like, well, wait a second. How old are those Zinfandel vines? Because it used to be 100-year-old vines, you know, when we talked about old Zinfandel. And, you know, some scraggly old little thing that didn't get pulled out of, uh, you know, Contra Costa or, uh, or Sonoma. And, uh, and then you find, oh, no, 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 they're old mines. They're, uh, they're eight years old. <laughs> you know? uh, but they, they changed the whole, the whole thing. Uh, and that used to be the model. And, and those models fail because you, you might as well start with a new label because you took, you took one consumer at, at, at the high point in small production. And then you you dragged it all the way down to you know a new consumer with totally different wine characteristics, and you lost the old consumer. Um, they don't buy for the same, didn't have the same, you know, uh, ratings back then. Were a much bigger deal. Um, and so now this is a new approach to it. That's the way I look at it. I don't know. I've not talked to anybody that can tell me this one way or the other. But I do know that they're about growth. They've been very consistent in the way they look at growth, and uh, and uh, they, that's why they shed all those other brands. You know, those were those were uh, holding them back from getting the growth that they were looking for, and um, you know this is about the, the future. This is about um, you know an, an iconic brand that they could that they could maybe put a second label under instead of instead of changing it. Uh, you know they keep the the tradition of the original label. They could do something beneath that and actually uh, have a product line with extensions. Okay. Yeah, that's it's uh, interesting to hear that basically that old model of acquisition, expansion, and then sell-off or just sort of total dilution, um, you know, is is dying. I hope it dies. You know, I, it kills me every time I go into a gas station 
and I see a bottle of Carmenet Chardonnay <laughs> from California Appalachian for seven dollars a bottle, and you know, I grew up, na- you know, the property neighboring Carmenet at the top of the mountain, and it's you know, sort of the one of the two original iconic Sonoma cab brands, and now it's gas station Chardonnay. Um, it's like why even bother keeping the name, right? That's, you know, corporate mess. That's what, uh, that's, you know, back to what we were just talking about, uh, you know, R&D is faster. Right. Right. I can certainly argue that, I mean, Gal is brilliant in the way they execute, uh, you know, them coming out with, uh, uh, with, you know, red, red blends. Um, Right. In 2000 was, was actually reasonably fast. It took them a couple of years to get through it. And decide that they could take uh, overproduced Merlot, overproduced Syrah, overproduced Cabernet, to a smaller extent, and and take good lots of, especially Merlot and Syrah, that weren't selling, and put them in a lower priced wine, uh, call it a red blend, and it actually tasted okay, especially early, before they started putting green green Cabernet in it. Uh, it's, it's pretty good, and so they, you know, they they can they can do it. But you know, I find the the real breakthroughs are probably in that in that smaller category you know, in terms of well, and it seems it seems like a lot of times these things start with with good ideas and 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 um, but they end up being diluted. So just like you said, it starts out with good grapes and making something to taste good, and then as it starts to grow, they've lost that supply, and so then it becomes you know they start adding green cabernet or. You know, I mean, for that matter, when, you know, Benziger is gone from a Sonoma County and, you know, Carnero Shard, and now they're going to be a, a Central Coast or California Appalachian. And, you know, that was something purchased by uh, the wine group. And, 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 and of course, they're, they always say, we're going to keep it. And we're going we're gonna to do better by the brand. And it gets down the road a little bit and then they just shift everything away. And, and I guess that's just yeah. corporate mentality. Well, we have a, we have a biased, uh, both corporate and small, we have a bias talking about cases. So, you know, in, in the situation where, you know, let's just say you run out of, let's say making this up, you start, you have a Napa Valley Cabernet brand. Uh, you run out of Napa Cabernet at a certain quality and price point that you need to be able to produce that but you can find some Sonoma Cabernet that's pretty good too. And now you have North blend. And now you squeeze in a little, maybe a little bit more uh, Mendocino and Lake. And then you start getting even tighter. You can still call it North Coast and you put in your, I don't know, small percent of, lo- of Lodi that you can still, and you can still call it North Coast. I forget what you can add. It's a small amount. Um, and instead then, you know, because you've had all this nice volume growth. And then, so the next step you take is to say, well, Let's call it a California Appalachian, you know. Right. Uh, and and the, the reason that you make that step is because you can't grow the volume anymore. And nobody ever says, well, why don't we raise the price? Because it's not about cases, it's about profit. <laughs> but nobody ever says that. Nobody ever says, well, let's just raise the price and let's slow the volume down. But that's, that, that's like heresy, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a part of the whole, I mean, isn't that a part of the whole system that we've created here in the United States is that you've got people yeah. that are responsible every quarter for showing, showing growth. So to, for someone to come out and say, 
we should be taking a step back is you're just shooting yourself in the head. Yeah, and, and that's actually why we're sitting on oversupply right now. Uh, yeah. I've read the report, recognize that's one of the things I, it took me a while to figure it out, but I, going back and digging into the numbers, I figured out, you know, we ended up with this, with this uh, bubble that was created, but not because of planting, because of overestimating uh, what we could actually sell. Nobody was paying attention that growth was slowing. Even though I can talk about it, it's, it was slowing. It's slowing for about five years now. And but you know, think about people getting together, even small wineries, getting together. You know, in, in the conference room, owner sits and us, okay, well, we grew eight percent last year. What should we shoot for next year? And you know, the production guy says, or the sales guy says, let's see, eight percent. How about six? <laughs> the owner goes. Well, how about 10? I mean, you, you, you can't go from eight to 10? Are you kidding me? Uh, and so, you know, the sales guy goes, yeah, yeah, you know, we can grow 2%. Yeah, come on, guys, we can grow 2%. That was happening across every winery. And every, you know, you come in the next year, well, let's see, we grew by 6%. How much should we grow this year? How about 4%? How about 10%? Right? And so we end up with this, with this, with this bubble. This is the system that, you know, that, that we've created. And, and it's a remarkable time because we're going to go through some very painful changes on the, on the, the land and the vineyard side. We're ripping out vineyards today. Um, and we still need to rip out some uh, to get back to, you know, something that's normal. Another, th another thing's going to happen in this, which is it's, uh, it's late in the, in the hour to actually bring it up, but uh, both a decrease in property price in, in many Appalachians and, and certainly a decrease in, um, in grape price. And, and although that's painful, the reality is our product on the whole is too expensive. And so this actually is, is the beginning of a normalization pro process that once we do get these young consumers engaged, once we do start to change the way we market, we have great opportunity as an industry because we'll have a large cohort of people where we can sell a product that is better for you and aligns with their values. And then we can grow value, then we can go volume and price again. But we're gonna have to go backwards for a, a few years before we get there. Yeah, how you like the sound of that, guys? I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't disagree with it. Um, well, that was an agreement then. <laughs> yes, that, uh, that's an agreement. Are you for tariffs now? <laughs> No, the biggest problem that we have, I mean, you know, land prices is a huge piece of it. Um, but to really grow the premium grapes in Northern California, um, it, the labor costs are, are huge. And I'm not saying, and I don't begrudge our labor force at all. I, in fact, I think they should probably get paid more. Um, but how do we, how do we balance um, the need, you know, to have, you know, living wages and, um, you know, pay the people who work in the vineyards and make the wine what they deserve and what they're worth uh, in Northern California, you know, living in Northern California um, and still, you know, shoot lower on our, on our price points and our price per ton, you know, and for sure there's a, there's in, you know, hype and inflation that goes into a $25,000 ton of, of not even the real Tokelon, Tokelon Cabernet. Um, but for real, you know, I, I, I see it every day. Um, 
the the labor cost that it takes to get that fruit to a place where you could even think about charging those prices uh, it costs a lot more than it does to do that with the machine in Lodi um, and you know that's that's a real that's a real you know sort of juncture point of, of this conversation I think well it's it's again it's not about uh, it's not about cost it's about margin yeah. right so you're not selling grapes for the same cost you're not selling wine for the same price between let's just say Sonoma County and, and Lodi. They're, they're very different prices. Uh, and right. different too. So, you know, uh, and they have different farming models, right? It is much more mechanized in the, in the Lodi region than, uh, than here in the North Coast. So uh, I don't look at it as being po- impossible. I look at it as uh, you know, needing to be refined and, and, you know, dialed in because everything you said is true. Uh, it's becoming more expensive. Uh, but if, if our costs of grapes are dropping at the same time, land values are dropping, it's painful. It's painful to talk about because you're, you're a vineyard owner. You don't want to hear this. Yeah. Um, but it's probably, it's probably going to happen whether you like it or not. Um, just because of what's happening on the consumer side. Our volumes are dropping, and if you're a grower, what's important to you? Not the bottle price. What's important to you is are you selling all your tons? It's about the volume. And when our volumes are dropping, that's a problem for the grower. Yeah. And so, yeah. the, the we're going to go through some painful changes. Um, but I, I have all of all of the you know with all of my decades of experience now, I know what happens. It happens single time. This industry is so traditional, so slow to change. When it has to change, it changes, and, and we're really successful at it. It happened with direct consumer because we couldn't get three tier. Uh, you know, you can you can probably go back. I I haven't thought about it, but I I bet you I can go back and find another four or five you know points like that. But even even today, uh, look at how fast people evolved to Zoom tastings. Uh, something like I said, I've been talking about this since Skype was around. Let's do a Skype tasting. You don't have to get on the plane. You don't have to get back there and the, you know, just set it up. You know, just get the wine there. Do it on Skype. That'll be great. We could have done it. Uh, a few tried, uh, not for, not. And then when we started doing Skype, we started doing Zoom. By the way, when we closed all the tasting rooms, I was interested in reading some early blogs. Oh, it's a disaster. It's a mess. And, and if you go back and read one of my blogs at that point, I said, no, it's new. It's not a disaster. It, we're we're going to get good at it. Just trust me. And now things that, that, are, that are going on right now, I mean, it's a real, it's a real revenue stream. That's, that genie's not going back in the bottle. So I have, I have every bit of belief. This is, this is a, a business that's been around for thousands of years. Uh, and I have every bit of belief that, that it will continue to be around. And the ones that, that do well are the ones that are going to uh, change and get into the flow of, uh, of demand the fastest. The ones that are going to stay and say, no, we can't do that, those are the ones that are going to, uh, sadly, not be around. They'll, they'll, it's, not, it's not necessarily that we're not going to lose wineries. They just their hands, right? Um, but we could lose volume unless we're willing to make the changes on, on the wine selling side and, and hit this new consumer that's coming in. 
that's a big deal. This new consumer is coming as large as the boomer uh, cohort that's, that's phasing out. And shame on us if we can't, at this point, see the opportunity. Well, and Rob, I love, I love your point about people complaining about marketing to people that aren't buying wine, but it's, a, it's sort of a catch-22. But if you got to somehow educate them and market to them to get them to buy the wine, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a wheel. Um, you know, you, it's a virtuous cycle. You, you know, you bring people in, you create evangelists, uh, you, you know, you spread buzz in some, in, in some ways it's a mystery. And in other ways, if you look at data analytics and the way that marketing is done today, using data in, instead of guessing, it's, actually pretty interesting. And we haven't even, we haven't even begun to tap that side of it, by the way. We got uh, Amitri, Paul Mabry's got his company that's doing, uh, doing some of that. And then, um, uh, you know, a little bit with um, uh, MJ Dale in Customer Vineyard. And then uh, I think there's one more, drawing a blank. Uh, we're going to shout out to Kathy, friend of the program, Kathy Huey, uh, Analytics, right? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Kathy was the one I was trying to, trying to remember. It's right. And I, I, I'm forgetting your company now. Uh, Eno, Enolytics. There we Enolytics. Go. Thank Enolytics. you. Yes. Yeah. Great, great gal, great person, super smart, uh, good journalist too. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, so there's three sources of, of data and uh, we got to get better with data. One of, the, one of the questions I ask on the survey, which I hope everybody that's still listening will take um, uh, in October, is you know, how many people have a dedicated person assigned to uh, reviewing your consumer data? Yeah. And the answer that I, that I got the first time I ran out two years ago was 7%. And, um, and this last year, and then some of them had part-time, and I understand that. Uh, uh, but this last year, um, over half the industry didn't look at their data. And guess how many of those 50% that didn't look at their data wished that they had when they shut the taste rooms because that's, that was the biggest asset the, industry, the winery had at that point, the ability to call people, dial them up on the phone saying, we got a deal for you, you know, we, you know please help us, this is what's going on. Um, you know, and, and once again, the industry is right, but, but those are the kind of changes that we're gonna have to, to make. We have a lot of changes to make in this industry. And we will. I have no question. Hey, Rob, uh, what kind of music you play with the, you know, you said you play guitar and drums. Are you in a band? Well, um, yeah, I, uh, I'm in a bank band right now. On, on occasion, they let us play. It's a, it's a pretty good deal. You know, we, I played South by Southwest. I played, um, wow. I played uh, the Fillmore, uh, American Music Hall. You know, the bank said, Bank sets us up at these nice venues and does uh, and does events, and uh, it's uh, you know it's it's a lot of fun. So uh, you know we, the bank or the band's got a um, you know uh, set of music that we play, and um, you know normally the way it works out is we go, you know we go into our um, uh, there we go we go into a rehearsal for a few days, and um, and then. Um, we practice and a little bit of fun, and then we we do a performance. So that's what I do now. Uh, I used to I used to play a lot more. At one point, I had to make a choice about either 
um, being a musician or uh, oceanographer is one of the things I was going to be maybe. <laughs> uh, and uh, in the end, I, I just decided to uh, be a banker because in 1981, when or actually 81, a job offer out of school. It was the job offer I got. We were in the middle of a big recession, so that's why I'm a banker. <laughs> I never. I have so many friends. I mean, being in the arts, I had a lot of friends in the arts. And, um, it's just so hard to make money doing that. So yeah. yeah, it's it's a hobby for me. I do it to keep my sanity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good time for that. <clears throat> Well, you want to let's uh, you guys let's let's get the information out there one more time, uh, Rob. If you give people the web address that they can go to to actually see this report, the last the last report. Yeah, it's svb.com. It stands for Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, if you want to, the whole URL, it's www.svb.com/wine-report. But easy way do it is uh, if you don't have a pencil it's just svb.com and then search for wine report and you'll, you'll find it yeah yeah a lot of nice information in there i know one one thing that we didn't talk about was the specific varietals that were um that were fast growing um that i thought was really interesting and 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 how it's sort of related to tariffs but i think that's probably another show yeah i think we're about like an hour and 15 already at least so. yeah yeah so um, Our, your, your three people that are left that have actually listened this far probably won't. won't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Bart's mom is the only one still listening right now. Yeah. <laughs> so right, at well, this point, because nobody's listening, if we wanted to say shit, we could. Uh, you, oh. could have, you could have said that, right? It could have been the first word out of your mouth. We could have right it. It'll, it'll never be controversial. Yeah. <laughs> While we're on the topics of mom, so what is, your mom's drinking only fancy red wine what are what are you serving your mom uh right now in your in your household what's her what's her favorite napa red uh of choice or what are you what's in your collection that you're busting at well right now it's uh it is willamette valley pinot noir it's kind of a kind of a favorite um i have uh i got turned on to a uh a guy in sonoma county that was selling uh Mendoza uh, Melbach and he was delivering cases, you know, around the Napa Sonoma for, and it was 10 bucks a bottle. Wow. Oh, wow. But I, you know, I bought a case of it. I can't, you know, can't be, can't be bad. It turns out it actually is, is quite good. So got four cases of that. Mom likes that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I, I don't drink, uh, I don't drink, uh, you know, $35. Well, I, you know, I used to, before I got divorced and gave away half my net worth <laughs> back in 2011, I, um, you know, I probably did drink $35 bottles of wine every night, but um, no, I'm more into the, you know, if I can find $20. Today, you can find $10 wines that are, that are quite nice, given the oversupply we have, and it's not going to last for long, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, this kind of, this time of year, I'm more into uh, uh, rosés. I, Got a you know a nice Maryvale rosé and uh, uh, Pinot Noirs that are out there like like Oregon Pinot Noirs. You know, Cap for me is uh, normally more of a a fall winter kind of a something I pair with a uh, more red. Yeah. Up oh, is that Curry? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, yeah. you better wrap. 
Yeah, let's yeah. do it. So <clears throat> those of you listening out there, you want to get a hold of some of these wines. I encourage stay out of Safeway. Um, maybe go to Oliver's, but we highly encourage going to Bottle Barn. Um, uh, Bottle Barn in Santa Rosa, which is one of our favorite stores. You can get some of these. You know, I'm in the same boat, Rob. Is, you know, I'm drinking Chenin Blanc, like, you know, from Craig Harmeyer. I'm drinking Bokish wines, um, things that I can get for $12, $13, $14 dollars a bottle. And then Sam is nice enough to, to donate to my uh, cause uh, periodically for $16,600. And, yeah, you, can, uh, you, you can find good wines to drink. And, and you know what? If you get a relationship with a winery, um, you know, that's a great place to, to get good wines to. And, and they'll even tell you, you know, where to go. They'll make some observations. If you don't, they don't have something that is at your price point, get a relationship. Tell you where to go get it. Yep. Yep. All right. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you guys next week. We got um, three um, interviews set up for next week. We actually are going to be talking to Guy Eschel, who is uh, running a winery in Israel, who I just happened to um, come across a few days ago, um, speaking to one of his friends that used to run a taco tour in Mexico City, and he's now in Tel Aviv and was telling me he had this good friend that was uh, um, the winemaker at a winery there, and I've never had an opportunity to try Israeli wine, um, but Sam, I can tell you one real interesting thing. We got into a small conversation about kosher, and he said you could do an entire show on the kosher uh, thing that happens in Israel. He said it is like the cartel. It is supposedly <laughs> deep, deep, deep in some really shady shit. So I think that'll be a fun show. It, you know, it is kind of funny. And, and by the way, the, um, a lot of the kosher wine that's made, um, you know, there's, there are different uh, sects within the kosher world to get, you know, you get certified. And uh, so, you, you know, you go pick whatever, whatever certification you want. And there's different rules that you have to follow to get there, but you know you can go find first growth wines that, that are that are kosher, and you know and the difference was that the you know they've been blessed by the by the rabbi, um, you know at the end he had to make the wine he had to blend it, uh, somebody else picked it somebody else you know but uh, you know didn't have to have unclean hands do that but the but the uh, he had to blend it at the end whatever that meant and and so then they're fine and and they're they're kosher. But, um, you know, when you go, you try some of these Israeli wines, uh, they're fantastic. And the, and the growth that, it, that has taken place in the last 10 years in particular, both in, in cuisine and wine and grill has been really quite amazing. Um, yeah. And so you'll, you'll be blown away if you try some, some of those. They're just fantastic. Yeah, he's sending us some of the wine. You know, he used to work for... Um, uh, he worked for Chris Brockway um, at Brock Cellars and also um, over at a couple of wineries in Napa. So that'll be a fun conversation. Any shout outs, Sam, you and Bart, you want to say anything before we sign off? Uh, I don't think so. I'm, I okay. got to put my kosher rosé labels on. It's supposed to be happening this week or next week. Uh, so maybe I'll have, a, I'll have a couple bottles of that. We'll, we'll spread it around to I make uh, Rob, we make, uh, as far as I know, one of the world's only Napa Valley organically grown 100% Grenache, whole cluster press, Grenache rosés. Uh, uh, intentionally, <laughs> with, uh, intentionally made, right. Intentionally yeah. made, yeah, with uh, with my buddy up at Maya Thomas Winery in Napa. So, we, you know, premium uh, kosher wine that, and we, you know, there's uh, a lot of rule following and rule um, bending 
that happens to, <laughs> to, to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, here's what I'll say to those last people that are listening. My shout out is um, be nice to people and wear your mask. Where are your there we go. Mask. Yeah. Good yeah. Way to end it. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. If you want to check out some of our past episodes, you can go to radiomisfits.com slash the winemakers. And we appreciate you listening. Stay safe out there. Tune in. Drink uh, drink more wine. Drink more uh, 16600 and Dane Sellers if you can. Get a hold. It's uh, winery16600.com, danesellers.com. Peace out, guys. Peace. See ya. <laughs>